high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. I am excited once again to bring you another special episode with an outstanding question answered by an amazing expert. Let's hear our question from Maddie Moore in New Jersey. Maddie is with Positive Youth New Jersey, a freshman in high school. My name is Maddie Moore. I'm calling from Flemington, New Jersey, and I'm a freshman at Voorhees High School. My question is, does marijuana cause psychosis and schizophrenia, or do some people just have a bad trip? Thank you, Maddie, for your question. A high school student with such a sophisticated, curious mind. Um, I, I love that. And to answer your question, Maddie, I reached out to the one person in the entire world who knows more about this and researched it and knows the biology and, and published chapters and books and research about the issue of psychosis and marijuana. So I'd like to welcome to High Truths, Dr. Christine Miller. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lev, to speak on what I regard as a really important topic. I'm passionate about it. Um, to answer this question, uh, I will go into some detail, and I hope that the very curious high school student will stick with me on this. But basically, several decades ago, an epidemiologist by the name of Dr. Bradford Hill composed a set of criteria that could be used to address causation in epidemiology because in case you don't know, epidemiology is really a different kind of science than say a chemistry experiment where you can put two reagents together and then predict what the outcome will be in terms of a product. Uh, you can conduct several experiments and pretty much say, okay, you know, I've nailed it, that's proven. With epidemiology, you really have to look at the, the question of causation from many different angles. It takes a developing a whole body of evidence from these different angles in order to prove that causation exists. So in terms of applying these Bradford Hill criteria to the question of marijuana and psychosis, really the foremost uh, psychiatric epidemiologist in the world, Dr. Robin Murray, has applied these to the question and feels that it is answered in the affirmative. So I'm gonna go through my take on what some of these elements of causation are. I'll try to be fairly brief on it, but it, it is complicated. So the first proof of causation has to do with the strength of an association, a correlation. And critics may say, you may even have heard this, that correlation doesn't equal causation. I had a 32-year-old who came in with a little alcohol, marijuana, no real psychiatric history, and she was hitting her head, seeing her assailants and driving her in the room, um, seeing things that weren't there, and I, I had to um, sedate her and admit her to the men mental health unit. Um, and so that's an example. And then is that that's an association, but not necessarily a causation, right? 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, perfect example. And so what has happened is that researchers have looked at this association and conducted what are called meta-analysis, which is combining many studies around the world that have looked at documented an association and they came up with what you would call an average risk factor. And that was for marijuana used in the last century, which was actually much less potent than what we have now. It was about two to 5% THC at most. And for weekly use of that low strength marijuana, the risk for having an associated psychotic disorder was 1.8 times, 1.8 fold. Now, more recently, uh, Dr. Marta DeForti and Dr. Robin Murray, who I mentioned earlier, have looked at high strength marijuana, which in Europe is regarded as 10 to 15% THC. THC. Actually, we've visited a, a dispensary and they're selling 25, even 90% cannabis. Exactly, but that doesn't happen over there so much. So in Europe, where they've conducted most of the epidemiology, um, the high strength is considered 10 to 15%. So the results that come from those studies should really worry us because we're dealing with even more potent product. And what they found is that daily use of that high strength marijuana conferred a five-fold increased risk for having an associated psychotic disorder. So that's a strong association. And that's the first criterion that satisfied there's a dose response relationship. So you're much more likely to develop marijuana-induced psychosis the more strong the product is and the more frequently you use it. And that has been found in you know, many different studies in countries like Sweden, the UK, um, the Netherlands, and New Zealand. And that, that makes sense because at the beginning of my career, I didn't see anybody or I didn't notice the 1.8 fold increase that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I didn't really notice that in, in my profession, but now with all the high potent products out there, I'm seeing daily ER visits from, from what I, with psychosis associated with um, marijuana. Yes, absolutely. And um, you know, I'll touch on that later, perhaps, uh, when talking about population level studies and what you can see there, you know, what sort of change it takes to observe that. So the high strength marijuana, it makes sense that you're now seeing things in the emergency departments. Uh, the timing of the association is important. Another criterion from the, the Bradford Hill set of, of uh, causation uh, basically, you know, if you develop psychosis before the marijuana use, then of course it's not causal, right? <laughs> you had the psychosis already. Okay. And so psychosis research around the, the world, again, has looked at this and tried to figure out ways to address it. They constructed, teams constructed what are called prospective studies where they followed young teens, you know, from age 13 on up for several years, interviewed them regularly to figure out what's going on with their lives, you know, and are they using drugs? Are they using marijuana? And what they found um, in four studies, four large studies, that was the marijuana use precedes the psychosis and the preponderance of cases, whereas 
people who may have teens that may have had some psychosis liability at steady onset. Mm-hmm. For example, maybe their parents had psychosis, one of their parents had psychosis, or a brother or sister, or maybe they themselves had a subclinical psychotic trait. We're no more likely to begin marijuana use, not significantly more likely. So that really put to rest that issue of timing. Uh, Really, it is the marijuana use that comes first. Then in epidemiology, you know, it's so complex because people are going about their daily lives and they're influenced by so many different variables. So it's hard to control for all those things. There are studies where THC has been administered in the clinic and four studies, one at Yale and three in the UK, where they have shown that if you administer a moderate dose of THC, to subjects who have no family history of psychosis, so this is important, Um, 40% will show psychotic symptoms during the course of the day. Now, these are transient, obviously it would be unethical if you were giving a dose that would cause long-term psychosis, but generally one dose that's a moderate dose is not going to turn someone into, you know, having a chronic psychotic disorder. I like just kind of picture the people who volunteered for this study. Yeah. yeah. What, um, what percent THC were they given to smoke? Um, it was actually IV administration. So it's, oh, it's hard to wow. Basically, it was the equivalent of a moderate dose. From wow. That's amazing. They got uh, approval to do such experimentation. Yes. Yes, well, not just one was done in this country. The UK is a little more liberal with that kind of thing, I guess. Right, yeah. Yeah, so that's, an, you know, another, you know, that constitutes another element of proof for causation that, you know, feeds into this body of evidence. Um, the other question is, you know, some critics of this association will say, oh, you know, people who develop psychosis tend also to be drug-seeking and sort of their personality type is such that they seek out drugs as well. There's something mm-hmm. about perhaps their genetics that make them I more... In my Go ahead. I have not noticed that necessarily in my career. No, but... Because otherwise all the people with the opioid epidemic would have psychosis, right? Because a lot of... There was a lot of drug-seeking behavior throughout hospitals and healthcare, you know, especially at the peak of opioids. If if drug-seeking caused psychosis, we would have seen a lot of that. Exactly. Yes, perfect point. And so what I was going to cite actually are large studies that, that have looked at this question for many different types of drugs. So exactly what you were saying, um, that there were there was there were two studies in Europe, one in Finland and one in Denmark, where they studied thousands of subjects who had one type of drug-induced psychotic break or another. And let me just quickly describe how a psychotic break differs from the transient psychotic symptoms I was describing in their clinical studies. A full psychotic- And Christine, maybe when you're doing that, I realize that I took for granted that all our, our audience and listen listeners know what psychosis is. So this is perfect. Can right. you explain what psychosis is and then go about the different types? Yes. 
Great point. Um, I'll talk about just three of the most prominent symptoms that are elicited by marijuana. There are many others that are, are also, also involved in, in psychosis, but the three prominent ones are paranoia. I would say that's the first pre presenting feature usually with marijuana-induced psychosis, the fear that others intend harm for you, to do harm to you. Um, the other would be delusions. That's probably the second most common feature um, that involves sometimes delusions of grandeur, thinking that you're Jesus Christ, for example. Uh, sometimes they're persecutory delusions. And then uh, the third most prominent feature uh, involve auditory hallucinations, hearing voices. And very often those are command voices. They're telling you, you know, to do things or they're saying you're a bad person and therefore you have to, you know, do something. Um, they're very unpleasant frequently. And so having um, a full psychotic break means that you have a constellation of these symptoms at once. They're very intense and they're enduring. So they last for at least a couple to three days. And that is long enough for most people to require admission to a hospital for care. So in Finland and Denmark, they tracked different types of drug-induced psychotic breaks because, first of all, they have centralized healthcare systems so they can do this kind of thing. And what they, they looked at was what happened eight years out for these people. You know, if you had a marijuana-induced psychotic break, what, what were you doing eight years out? Were you, did you return to normal? or not, and for LSD, PCP, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, alcohol, all of which can trigger psychotic breaks under certain situations, but generally uh, people do recover. And so the difference in the recovery rates is for marijuana-induced psychosis, eight years out, only 50% had recovered. Whereas for the other drugs, the recovery range from 70% to 95%. So, so if I see a patient um, who has psychosis and is on marijuana, I could give them hope that if they stop using and take the current treatment for this episode, um, this can resolve 50% of the time? Yes, yes. And actually, that's my next point, is that that's another uh, element. Proving that's clinically that. very helpful. Yes. Right? And for other yes. drugs, um, it's much higher. The recovery is much better, more, more likely, yes. So an excellent study was conducted in Spain and published online in 2009 by Gonzalez Pinto AL that showed that um, if those who have what they call a cannabis-induced psychotic break quit using, their chances of being in that 50% who recover eight years out is much, much better. For those who continue using, it's really dramatically bad. They end up actually worse off than people whose psychosis has nothing to do with marijuana, but say came from a family risk factor. Um, so and they just have the, the gene for having schizophrenia. Exactly. So wow. cannabis-induced psychotic breaks, if they keep, keep using, they end up being the worst category of all. Um, Christine, is that age-related? So um, is that, you know, for me, 
we talk about the growing brain and how the brain stops growing um, at age 25 or 27 even. Um, and so what I've been teaching is that if you, in, if you use an addictive substance, tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, or any type of drugs before age 25, 27, before your brain is growing, you have a four to seven time increased chance of um, developing an addiction. Um, than somebody my age. But is that true for psychosis and marijuana? So if you use um, a regular use before age 25, 27, does that mean that you have more of a chance to having long-term psychosis than if somebody, you know, in their 50s or 60s starts using for the first time? Yes, there is evidence that starting younger is worse. But the misconception that you know I really like to correct is that doesn't mean you're safe after a certain age. So the brain is still developing until really the late 20s, particularly in men. And so beyond the late 20s, though, the question is, can you become psychotic from using marijuana? And absolutely, yes, you can. Um, there, there definitely is an age profile of risk that increases it. So earlier use is worse. It could also be that later use is worse because um, there is evidence, anecdotal reports of people who are elderly having a terrible time with marijuana-induced paranoia. So the brain, you know, is not static. And um, I think there are vulnerabilities for everyone to have this kind of outcome depending on the stress is going on in your life and many other variables. So there's no magic age beyond which it's safe. That's for right. sure. And yet there's, you know, the critics would say, but hey, there's a lot of people who've been using their whole life and um, they don't have any psychosis and they're functioning well. Yes. And in a way, I think they probably self-select because um a substantial portion of people who experience psychotic symptoms, perhaps even before they have a full psychotic break with all the symptoms happening at once, will quit because it's not pleasant. I mean, it's not pleasant to think that, you know, I, you're- Yeah, gonna... I've heard patients tell me that. It's like, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't like that. I don't, they realize what they have, a, they understand and they saw the association in themselves and they don't like it. Yes. Yes, I mean, it's it's really no fun. I mean, one thing you can do is to go on to, I don't know if they still have these, but a few years ago, I would go on to some of the chat rooms for marijuana.com, for example, just to, to read what was coming in from users, you know, and very often there would be teenage users writing in for help. Why do I think my grandma's gonna stab me to death in the middle of the night? Why am I having these feelings? And they would be, begging for help, you know, because they thought they were doing something wrong, that there was something wrong about the way they were using marijuana. Maybe it was the wrong strain, you know, you know, maybe they were just needed to chill out more. And occasionally, and often the advice was not very good, but occasionally these wise older users would write in and say, look, I'm sorry, bud, you've got to quit. Because if you have that kind of reaction, you will always have that kind of reaction. So it could be that the, you know, the people who have been using their whole lives and are successful at doing so, um, basically 
are among, you know, that portion of the population that for whatever reason is immune to this effect. Uh, however, you know, you have to look at them closely and examine, well, maybe what other effects are you having that aren't so good, you know? I just, you make me smile, Christina, because <laughs> you, um, you go through the detailed research to a higher depth than I've you know, enjoy going into things. Every single paper, every, every single epidemiological angle, all the correlations, and, and you know, that usually stops there with scientists, but then you go onto the chat room <laughs> and listen to users. Yeah, that's above and beyond. That's more than any scientist I know who does that. So amazing. Well, yeah, but I mean, like translate the science and studies to what I could tell patients or what patients can learn. Like I just learned a lot from you, you know, if you're using um, and you're having psychosis when you're young, um, if you stop, you have a 50% chance of, you know, getting rid of the psychosis that you have. Um, and the same thing with other drugs that if you stop, then you have even a higher chance. You said 70 to 90% of, of stopping. So that's exactly. useful clinical tidbits to, to help out. Yes. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing is, um, you know, kids need help. And sometimes, you know, they can't take it from their parents, but they will listen to doctors, I believe, a lot more. I don't know, and, but uh, we try. So I think that's important. But the final Bradford, Bradford Hill criterion is are there plausible biological mechanisms that can explain this association? And the answer for marijuana is yes, there are quite a few. I'll just talk about two. One is through dopamine, which is a neurochemical that's very important to many types of brain function, but has been implicated in schizophrenia and psychotic disorders for a long, long time, either in you know, its formation, the rate at which it's formed, which because it, the dopaminergic tone, as they call it, seems to be higher in schizophrenia and psychotic disorders, or because of the receptors that it binds to. And so the question is, you know, how does THC interact with that system? And it does increase the release of dopamine in key brain regions. Um, there's a great paper by Bloomfield and others published a couple of years ago that comes out of the lab of Dr. Nora Volkow, and they review the, the animal literature and the human literature showing this effect. So that's one plausible biological mechanism. The other one that I'd like to interject is actually what I devoted my academic research career to studying, and that is a less known, well-known pathway called the kenurinine pathway. And we found that it was upregulated in schizophrenia, and other groups around the world have also confirmed this. Um, so, you know, this is a pathway that we're not quite sure why it would be causative or eliciting psychotic symptoms. Um, it's actually even elevated in uh, central nervous system infections that cause psychosis. So even HIV, for example, which can be associated with psychosis when it's uh, infecting the brain. Uh, will activate the kenurinine pathway. So uh, THC 
um, studies that were conducted a couple few decades ago in animal models showed that it activates the kinurning pathway. So there you have two plausible biological mechanisms, the kinurning pathway and dopamine. And my view is, you know, probably both are involved. This is a multifactorial outcome. Nothing in neuroscience is one thing. <laughs> it's always many things acting in concert. And so um, basically though, I feel as did Dr. Robin Murray that you know the issue of causation has been settled. Now, there are some people who will raise the issue um, of whether, you know, if, if marijuana causes psychosis, why haven't we seen increases? Well, Dr. Lepp, you were just talking about seeing increases finally in your, your clinical work. Um, it's, but it's, uh, I have one psychiatrist who estimates 80% of all the behavioral health admissions are positive for THC. And yet we're not, we're not really tracking that or, or, writing about it it's become so normalized that we're like oh, okay well whatever yeah we're going to just treat the psychosis and not even delve into the the drug association if it's thc it's a shame i mean that the truth of the matter is you know we don't track schizophrenia this schizophrenia is not reported to the CDC. You know, it's not like COVID. It's not like the flu. Mm -hmm. And so we don't actually know the, the total prevalence over time in this country. Um, but we do know, we do know that there is an absolute increase of in mental health cases, total, not necessarily schizophrenia or psychosis or depression, or I don't think we've said what kind, but we do have an increase of behavior health issues even before the pandemic, um, yes. where emergency departments are, are holding patients for days, literally days, waiting for a disposition. Yes. And at certain points in time, there have been, you know, really rigorous epidemiological studies in this country where they have calculated the rate of schizophrenia for geographical regions. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we aren't doing that consistently, unlike other countries. So, for example, in Denmark, um, they, you know, started tracking schizophrenia several decades ago and also marijuana use rates. And they know between the year 2000 and 2012, they had a significant increase in marijuana use. And during that same time period, uh, the schizophrenia rates went up. This was a study by Kuhl AL, K-U-H-L, published in 2016. And then also a study by Horthage AL, published just, just last year, showing that schizophrenia coupled with a cannabis use disorder was really going up during that same time period. That's so really other, interesting because... In Denmark, their THC is less potent than ours also. Isn't that true? Right. And it was more likely to have more CBD, which can be mitigating. It can reduce the psychosis-inducing impact of THC. So, mm -hmm. so unfortunately, yes, we're worse off than those countries, and yet they're doing more of the research um, and I think part of it is, you know, we don't do quite as much epidemiology, psychiatric epidemiology in this country. 
and uh, perhaps um, the Biden administration or somebody will change that. <laughs> um, but uh, the other question that's brought up often is, you know, whether a family history of psychosis is um, the main determinant of who will be susceptible. And as I mentioned in those clinical studies, they showed, you know, that no, you can get psychotic symptoms in people with no family history. And what I'd like to point out is that for the majority of cases of schizophrenia and other chronic psychotic disorders, no matter what the cause, the majority have no family history. So, so. I thought that there is a gene that was found and discovered that if you have this gene, you have a much higher likelihood of developing cannabis induced psychosis, that this gene has been isolated. It doesn't help me clinically or it doesn't help the public, but I thought that the, the research has shown this AK, whatever, you know. AKT1, like, yeah. No, that, um, that has not uh, yet been proven. Uh, the other thing about it is it would explain a very small portion of cases. So the problem with all genetic association studies for any type of psychosis is a few interesting genes have been discovered, but some have very low impact, like the COMT gene that was pursued for a long time only increased the risk by about 5%. Well, that's not very much, you know. And then uh, other genes that carry it seem to carry a much bigger risk factor, um, only you maybe can explain 2% of the cases. So, so there is. We know that there's a family history association with addiction and a family history association with mental illness, but you're saying what we're seeing with this marijuana-induced psychosis epidemiologically outdoes whatever we can explain with the family history. Yes, because even in cases of schizophrenia that seem to have nothing to do with drug use, mm -hmm. there is no family history. You know, the, and, and my take on this, having done a genetic association study, conducted one myself, is that what can happen is you have genes of risk that come in from different sides of the family or genes that don't interact well that come together in you. <laughs> you know, this happens, for example, in things like, um, you know, sadly sickle cell anemia. You know, if you carry just one of them, you're okay. But if you have two of them, it can be, it's, you know, it can be fatal. And so, um, but schizophrenia is not like sickle cell anemia. It's not just one gene, it's many genes. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is finally going to be how many genes combine that's, that's going to be the basis for what can trigger it in given individual. So the point is, uh, yes, even you may have, you know, genes of risk that cause your cannabis-induced psychosis, but those genes of risk didn't, you know, affect your great-great-grandfather or that generation because, first of all, they weren't exposed to cannabis, maybe, <laughs> and probably, and um, also they, they didn't have the other genes that were brought in that somehow accentuate risk. And with cannabis, with marijuana, I'm quite sure that because it's a drug, enzymes that degrade and process THC are going to be implicated eventually. Why not? I mean, every other drug that 
people take. Uh, how people respond to it depends on how their liver handles it, you know, the enzymes in the liver. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this brings up an important topic that I was planning on discussing, which is why edibles are so dangerous. Yeah, because so I, I definitely seen that. So yeah, I'll run a case by you and you can uh, and relate to that. But I had a patient who came in with what we called agitated delirium, or, you know, you have um, police officers and EMTs and a bunch of um, uh, big people controlling a very violent situation with a spit bag over their head. So they don't spit on the, on the people handling him. He looked like he was beat up abrasions all over his face and body. Um, and I had to chemically sedate him. And when he woke up, I had a conversation with him and he was such a, you know, pleasant, normal man. It sounds strange to say, but he was not the same animal-like behavior that he had hours ago. And I asked him what he took and he said he had a gummy bear. And I asked him, how many gummy bears did you have? And he said, just one just one and he went crazy and tore up his apartment and the neighbors heard him and had to come in. So edibles, are they worse in causing psychosis than the smoked products? They're worse in causing acute psychosis. Absolutely. And I mm -hmm. think that the reason is this first pass metabolism by the liver that occurs when you smoke something, it skips that first pass metabolism. It can go you know, straight to your lungs and then straight to the brain pretty much. Um, but the liver regards THC as a foreign substance. I mean, uh, people will have heard that, oh, we have endocannabinoids and, you know, therefore our body, body was designed to recognize and enjoy cannabinoids. Well, our body recognizes THC as a foreign substance. It is metabolized as if it is a toxin that needs to be lowered in concentration. And so the liver goes to work on it like it does many different drugs and it produces a suite of uh, metabolites. But one of them, 11-hydroxy-THC is actually more potent than THC itself. And this doesn't happen when you smoke pot. So the 11-hydroxy-THC rises in concentration. And um, what can also happen with edibles is the effect is delayed. And so they don't actually um, recognize what's building up, you know, in terms of their liver metabolizing all of a sudden lots of this drug. And it can hit suddenly and be very acute. In Colorado, they've had examples before Colorado put a cap. So is on it the, the potency? Is it the amount of THC that's causing more psychosis when you consume it edibles rather than the smoked? No, it's the metabolism because it's generating, I believe, it's generating 11-hydroxy-THC, which is more potent. And the you active, don't get- active metabolites. Right. You don't get, you get some 11-hydroxy from smoking, but not nearly as much. And 11-hydroxy-THC is also more long-lasting than THC itself. It hangs around for quite some time. And so in Colorado, um, when they first started, first had legalization, they allowed very 
potent edibles to be sold. And they have some tragic cases tragic. of people who had no prior history of psychiatric disorders becoming acutely psychotic and jumping off buildings or shooting yeah, themselves in the head yeah. and yeah. committing murder. So um, they have learned and they now strictly limit the amount that can be present in an edible uh, for that reason. Willie Nelson, by the way, has sworn off of edibles because he had a bad experience. So uh, that's been reported, uh, you know, verbatim quote from him in the, the press. So yeah, so yeah, Willie Nelson, who, um, uh, you know, is known for his uh, uh, marijuana casual use. Um, so yeah. can, can you just clarify that THC and hydroxy, if you're smoking or eating something that you bought at the dispensary, you're, you're consuming THC, but when it hits the liver, it is broken up into parts. And one of those parts is hydroxy THC. And that is 11. way more. Wait, I didn't hear you. 11 hydroxy THC. 11 hydroxy THC. And that is more potent than um, regular THC. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's the explanation for more psychosis with edibles so. rather than smoking. Interesting. Yeah, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, not enough study has been made of it, but I think that's the most logical explanation because otherwise it's extremely difficult to explain why edibles can cause such acute, acute psychotic breaks. Yeah. And you mentioned people have this terrible reaction um, and yet they continue to use after such an experience. I mean, some people say, well, okay, I'm never using that stuff again. Um, but some people say, don't make that association. Um, do you have an explanation for that? Yes, I think there are two. The first and most obvious is that it's addictive. And so Recovering from a psychotic break, you know, the addiction, this intense addiction withdrawal phase, it's usually about uh, two weeks in duration. And by that time, people can start to recover. A uh, psychotic break often takes longer than that to recover from. But um, I think sometimes what can happen, addiction is very complicated. You know, uh, so many things can act as cues for addiction. So people who you know are just getting about their normal life and maybe they've recovered from their psychosis they may all of a sudden experience a cue for their prior marijuana habit maybe they'll run into an old friend that they used to smoke with mm -hmm. maybe they'll smell marijuana and that will remind them of, of how much they used to enjoy it and they will crave it again um, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, your cup of coffee in the morning, once you smell the toast popping out of the toaster, you start thinking, oh gosh, I wish yeah. I had my cup of coffee. And so those sorts of cues can draw people back into their addiction and then they can How about have another. Both peer pressure and the pure advertisement everywhere around you that this is so healthy and medicinal. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, those things as well. And they think, well, maybe now that I've recovered, you know, I can fight anything off, you know, they think of it like an infectious disease. Well, I have antibodies now. It's hard to say. But another more concerning um, possibility is that 
There have been studies uh, uh, using brain scans in following teens doing longitudinal studies, which are really the gold standard to follow teens who are using uh, for several years and compare them to those who don't use. And what they have seen, this is work done by Dr. Kam Chung and others in, at the University of Minnesota. They have shown that there's damage to a part of the brain known as a prefrontal cortex when you the front start of the brain. Yes, that is involved, a key region that's involved in, in, among other things, it does a lot of things, but among other things, it's involved in insight, having insight into your own behavior, understanding sort of, you know, what's going on with your life and how you should correct it. And so uh, Dr. Nora Volkow has published a really nice review about the prefrontal cortex and insight and how drug use in general and marijuana use in particular can affect that brain region. So, you know, I personally know of cases where particularly young men have cycled through marijuana-induced psychosis, recovery treatment, relapsing, you know, recovering from the psychosis, relapsing to marijuana use, becoming psychotic again for seven to eight times. And you can imagine how devastating this is for the families, how grueling they just when they think they have, you know, this young person back on track, they relapse to something that makes them crazy. Right. And, and that's what Dr. Norkov, she always says, Addiction is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. And that's exactly what we're seeing with that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned suicide um, when you're talking about bad psychotic episodes. Um, Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yes. um, Suicide is something that has been found to be associated with marijuana use. Um, The best studies, well, first of all, let me point out that the risk of suicide very much depends on the ethnic group. Caucasians have the the highest risk for suicide. And Latin Americans and and people, you know, African Americans have have a much lower risk of suicide. Is that we don't know all, all causes or just marijuana related? All causes. And All so causes, the, Caucasians have a higher risk? Yes. And men higher than women. So particularly for completed suicides. Men higher than women. So, they taught us that way back in medical school 30 years ago. That, that uh, yeah, that's, hasn't that's changed. A board question, right? It says um, women attempt more and men complete. More yes, often. that's right. So two really good studies that have been conducted in Caucasian teenagers, one from New Zealand um, that was a prospective study, very well done study, thousands of teens were studied, um, and then another from Ireland that was really excellent because they controlled for a prior history of depression. And what they found was that the risk for suicide attempts after beginning marijuana use in these teens, you know, a couple few years later, went up sevenfold as compared to people who never took up the marijuana habit. So, um, you know, that's a big risk factor. That's actually bigger than the risk factor for psychosis. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. 
it raises the issue of, you know, what's going on, because it could be that the risk is exerted through the psychiatric disorders that it triggers. So it's not just psychosis that it triggers, it also doubles the risk for, for depression, for anxiety, for panic, for bipolar disorder. And yeah. all of those are associated with greater risk of suicide themselves. So, so it could be that so, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just, just quickly finish that thought. It could be that that's how it's acting, sort of an indirect effect through these disorders, or um, as would be indicated by the Irish study where they kind of corrected for depression, at least. Uh, it could be a more direct effect, and that would be consistent with the acute effect that they've seen with edibles precipitating suicide because that's far too short a time to develop a psychotic psychiatric disorder you know this is this is an acute very direct effect that implicates almost one you know biochemical pathway in the brain or one set of receptors and um even also, I should point out in, in clinical studies where they've used THC as a medicine, uh, there are reports in about five to 10% of patients, and I think this was in multiple sclerosis treatment, they, they found that suicidal ideation occurred during the course of the day or the course of the treatment. And so this is not nearly as serious as a suicide attempt in terms of potential for leading to actual suicide, but still it indicates that there's something that THC is interacting with that definitely increases suicidal urges in a very direct way. So is that, so can I tell my, our listeners that the suicide risk for Caucasians who are starting or using marijuana is sevenfold higher than someone who's not? Is that a true statement? Particularly if they're starting their teens, yes. At a young age, but not, not necessarily older adults. We don't know yet. I mean, the, the thing I, again, hate to put an age limit on it because mm -hmm. suicide, completed suicide peaks in middle age. Uh, successful suicides are much more likely in middle age. Right. And so more people commit suicide later in life. And I would not be willing to bet that marijuana couldn't also affect that. But the science is out that it's a sevenfold increase for teenagers who are using on a regular basis. Yeah. 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 You know, we have in the emergency department, uh, a very common chief complaint is being suicidal. Uh, people come in the emergency department, there's suicidal, actually, it's such a problem that we have um, part of a law enforcement uh, comes in and they have psychologists embedded with law enforcement um, called the PERT team that come in and bring patients. And, and um, um, for the emergency physicians and, and, nurse and nurses and personnel, we have um, a term for a lot of these, some of these drug-related suicidal ideations. And it may not sound PC, but that's kind of how we bring levity to our job. But we call it drunkicidal. And there are meth methicidal. Drunkicidal is people who are mm. drunk and they're suicidal. And then once they're sober, mm -hmm. they get their brain back and then they're not suicidal anymore um, and, mm -hmm. and uh, can be released for outpatient. Methicidal also... Um, unfortunately, meth lasts longer in the brain 
than than alcohol, mm-hmm. like even three days. So they could be there again for de- days being methicidal until that's out of their system. There's no antidote to that. And I'm wondering, yeah, what do you think of THC acidal? You know, is there such, you know, I yeah. I just made up that word today. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And uh, I'm wondering if we have THC acidal and if that takes a few days or longer to get that out of your system and get your brain back like we have that for alcohol and meth. Well, I would say certainly based on the experience with edibles, uh, that would be the case. With smoking, I I don't know. I mean, um, I will will tell you, um, I recently published with some co-authors a book chapter on marijuana and suicide and presented case control studies that others have done. I cited the two that I told you as well as many others Mm -hmm. and also analyzed population level data this was, you know, primary analysis by us of what's going on in the U.S. with respect to marijuana as compared to other drugs. So, you know, you raise, you know, these other types of drugs promoting suicide. It's absolutely true. And the concern and the reason we did this study was, first of all, suicide is tracked in this country. So the CDC does collect data on suicide, not like schizophrenia. So you could do this kind of work easily. And what we found is that, first of all, there is this concerning rise that has been going on year and year after year in the U.S. as a whole and specific states as well of, you know, increased suicide rates. And what we did was track, compare it essentially with multiple linear regression um, to the marijuana use rate. And the correlation, the regression coefficient is extremely high. It's 0.925. I mean, you almost never see that in biology and highly significant. And so what we did was we corrected though for other drug use, because this is important. Marijuana, unlike psychosis where marijuana is really unique, we uniquely bad, the worst, absolutely. Marijuana is kind of middle of the pack for psychosis, for for suicide, I'm sorry. And so basically uh, cocaine, for example, carries a greater suicide risk, Uh, heroin, the greatest of all. And these aren't accidental overdoses. These are actually intentional suicides by heroin heroin users. Uh, It's about double the risk for marijuana. But when you look at the proportion of people who are using in this country, uh, 8% in 2017, 8% of young adults were using daily. And that's you know, the, the type of use that definitely is associated with suicide versus 0.2% using heroin daily. So fortunately, heroin is still you know, much, le- much less prevalent. That's a 40-fold difference. So that means that marijuana, even though heroin has double the risk, marijuana with its sevenfold, you know, impact on on suicide risk certainly is going to have more of an impact uh, on suicide in this country. And I think we need to pay attention to this. I mean, my goodness, uh, you know, suicide is so multifactorial. You're not gonna be able to correct how this child was treated when they were young, you know, how, how they were beat up by their dad. You can't control that now. That's, that's over, you but know, drugs are sadly, you know. I mean, that's, it's, these are drugs, that are can't, drugs can't be, 
they are preventable. This is something we can do something about. And so I think this is a message that, you know, I really hope gets out. Um, I'm going to try using know, that just, word THC acetyl at work. I'm going to start using it and see if I, what kind of um, response I get from my colleagues. Action, you get. THC yes, acetyl. Yes, no, um, We fine. are, yeah. you remind me, all your um, amazing, sophisticated publications. Um, we're going to do a simple one uh, at our hospital at uh, Scripps Mercy in San Diego with drug surveillance. Um, with uh, along with the University of um, Maryland. So we're going to be sending two parts of this study. We're going to be sending them urines of patients with a diagnosis of psychosis or agitation. And we're going to see what's in their system and see if there's a, a, a you know, what, how much of a correlation is for patients coming to the emergency department with diagnosis of psychosis or agitation and what, what drugs are there surveillance wise. And then um, I, I, we're also going to look in the electronic health records from going, dating back a few years and moving forward. And I want to uh, see if we have a correlation with drug test results and behavioral health unit admissions. And maybe we can see the suicides as well. Um, yeah. yeah, so that, that'll be interesting. Kind of more patient type of data than, than you know, your, um, your more sophisticated research, but it'll be interesting. Oh, no, it's all of it's important. You know, absolutely. In fact, I think what can happen, you know, as I've tried to educate the public, you know, you can cite all these studies, um, but when you actually bring it to real life is when you talk about what's happening at a hospital near you, you know, so your, your, your data, I think will be very important in getting the message out. Yeah. And we had a episode with Dr. Campman, our medical examiner, and we're going to work with him too, and look at THC associated uh, deaths. You know, we can't necessarily prove causation with the, um, you know, seven points that you so eloquently went through. But I think just seeing the association, what I'm hoping would ask, have people ask more questions. And be sure that he looks at 11 hydroxy THC. Yeah, I think he has all, all, all the that. Actually, no, you know what? I don't know that most medical examiners check for all the metabolites. They And they only do qualitative testing, not quantitative, like they do for other drugs. So even mm -hmm. medical examiners around the United States don't take the extra um, testing like we do mm -hmm. for, you know, if somebody dies from opioids or fentanyl or methamphetamine, they'll do a quantitative. You had so many micrograms of this drug in your blood. But if you have THC, it'll just be, yes, you had it. No, you didn't. A, uh, a qualitative measurement, not necessarily a, a number, a quantity. Um, okay. So, so, but well, you're stuck with the data you have, unfortunately. So, But that's okay. I mean, that, that at least will be something. Right. Starting right. Well, I, that's what I'm saying. No one else has done that. I wanted to do this study five years ago. And in five years, no one else has done the study. <laughs> so we, it just needs yeah. to get done and hopefully inspire other people to do more. Um, so we talked about um, marijuana and suicide risk, a sevenfold increase in Caucasians. Um, mm -hmm. Is it less with African-Americans? Way less? The, uh, the all I can say in that regard is um, 
Uh, no, it's a study actually coming out of uh, Mexico. Um, the the risk was much less. The average, well, he was actually doing a meta-analysis. This is a very prominent suicide researcher. Borges is his name, B-O-R-G-E-S. And um, I really respect his work tremendously. But uh, he did, he mixed studies from many different ethnic groups and the uh, and included some uh, studies from Latin America, I believe. And the overall risk was 3.2 fold when you included all the ethnic groups. So for, for cannabis uh, and I'm sorry, yeah, and this was suicide, yes. And so basically, um, you know, we don't know specifically for the other ethnic groups what the suicide risk is. So is it, it's, it's, is it's it okay, now here's a tough question, but is it fair to say then, um, okay, well, we have higher risk in Caucasians, but we have other ethnicities who are enjoying marijuana and they don't have any problems with, you know, psychosis or suicidal ideations or other problems. So why, you know, punish one population because it's causing harm to the other? The um, this psychosis risk is probably about the same for other ethnic groups. Okay. It's just the suicide risk mm -hmm. that appears to be different. Okay. Um, what so, about marijuana-related violence? I mean, I, I, you know, those these agitated delirium events are these are violent outbreaks. I, I see them in the emergency department, and then when I watch the news and I see, um, I actually don't. I turn away because it's too disturbing for me. But when there's violent outbreaks on TV and people are watching, you know, people hurting each other, I'm thinking, you know, some of these people are on drugs. And mm -hmm. is there an association with violence yes. and marijuana? Yes. I mean, part of this is complicated by the fact that, um, you know, there's been a real push to avoid stigma being placed on people who have psychotic disorders because that really does affect their lives. And there is this innate fear, I think, that people have of people with schizophrenia, you know, that um, they might harm them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, it's important, I think, to get the truth out, which is that if people with psychosis are well medicated, a wonderful study was done um, by Fazel and others in the UK. If they're well medicated and they're not on drugs, recreational drugs, then um, they basically have only a very slightly, non, almost non-significant increased risk of being violent towards others. However, um, that same author published another study looking at specifically if the effect of drug-induced psychosis as compared to psychosis that had nothing to do with drug use. And the risk for violence is extreme violence, in particular extreme violence, including murder, was 10 times higher for the drug-induced psychosis cases. Uh, if you want to look specifically at marijuana-induced psychosis cases, there's data out of New Zealand published by Louise Arsenault in the year 2000. And she showed that for marijuana-induced psychosis, the risk of committing extreme violence like murder was 18 times higher than in normal controls. So um, let me just repeat that one more time because I think that bears repeating. 18-fold increase risk of 
violence associated with THC compared to non-THC violence? If, 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 if psychosis results, if they're psychotic because of marijuana use, their risk of committing murder and other forms of extreme violence are 18 times higher than normal controls. So um, that's a huge factor. <laughs> and 18 yeah, fold it, increase of marijuana associated psychosis violence. And you said 10 fold increase yes. for other drugs? You said uh, that was compared, that study compared drug induced psychosis versus not normal controls, but versus individuals with psychosis that came from family risk or some other cause that didn't have anything to do with drug use. So in other words, um, say your mother was psychotic and you became psychotic, but you're not using drugs, your risk of violence is you know, about one ninth that of somebody who is psychotic because they're using drugs. So in other words, drug use has a very peculiar effect on increasing extreme violence when psychosis is present. Wow. And of course it can trigger psychosis. So it's a vicious cycle. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically then- I'd love then to take all this research that you just stated, this amazing death and make it into like, um, you know, bullet points you know, graph, you know, graphics so people mm -hmm. could really understand and, and relate to that. That's amazing. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, um, you know, there is some issue about whether it takes psychosis for marijuana to increase violence. Um, there was a very interesting study, a neuropsychological study by done by Emily Ansel in 2015, where she studied healthy marijuana users who used him frequently, but they were mentally healthy who came into her lab. And then on alternate days, I believe it was, she gave them either marijuana or alcohol. The days that she gave them marijuana allowed them to smoke marijuana and they did the neuropsychological test. What they found was this very odd increase in the perception that the interviewer or some other person in the room intended to do them harm. So that was, you know, that subclinical, I would say, paranoia, but when it, you know, gets a little bit worse, it becomes, you know, a psychotic symptom, but it was subclinical. And you have to think, well, okay, and alcohol didn't do this. That was the important thing. Alcohol did not increase the perception that others intended them harm. So you have to imagine, you know, someone who's conducting their daily life and they come into a high stress situation, how that perception can increase the risk that you might do harm to others because you think you're protecting yourself. Um, so mm -hmm. the issue is in health and people who aren't psychotic, what's going on and um, some interesting, you know, anecdotal reports like the Minnesota Police Chiefs Association or some big district up in Minnesota, were tracking drug deals that involve murder. And the heroin drug deals almost never involve murder, they found, but marijuana drug deals, for some reason, frequently involve the users killing the dealers. And as they said in this, you know, press report, you know, that that's something heroin addicts would never do. They would never kill their dealer, you know. 
um, because they want the products. That's so why much. there was so much security so at the marijuana dispensary, not just for the cash. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and then, I mean, it is true that if you look at major cities where marijuana use has gone up significantly, for example, Denver and DC, uh, the murder rate has doubled since they, they legalize marijuana and since the use rates have gone up. So um, that's, that's concerning, you know. I think, I think the very saddest case, can I relate this case history to you, the NDC yes, that was sure. so sad because it happened, it happened within two blocks of where my son lives, actually oh, a little more, five blocks scary. of where my son lives. This young woman who worked for a nonprofit, Marjorie McGill, was reported in the Washington Post without dog walking, you know, walking a dog for a friend. And uh, it was after work, 7 p.m. on a summer, summer evening. And this young man ran up to her and stabbed her to death for no reason. He wasn't robbing her. He wasn't nothing. He just killed her on the spot. She bled to death. And it was so tragic. She, she was 27 years old. She moved there from California and moved to D.C. because she wanted, you know, to really make a difference. And it turned out, I actually conducted the forensic examination of what was the history of this perpetrator, Elias Oregahenye. And he had graduated, no, he had uh, graduated from high school in the DC area with no, no problems, you know. He went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Within the first year was kicked out of school because of his heavy pot use in the dorm and returned to DC to live with his mother. And within six months, a few months of his return, his mother was calling police because he was suicidal and essentially psychotic. And he is now, you know, essentially diagnosed with forensic, <laughs> forensic level psychosis. So mm -hmm. this is, is in, a sort in jail? of tragedy. He is in jail, um, but the question is, will he get off because, you know, maybe uh, they will consider marijuana-induced psychosis a mitigating factor? Is he one of, is he still cycling through those phases, or is he, you know, now solidly, chronically psychotic in jail, even without marijuana? We don't know that. If he's improved, they may use marijuana-induced psychosis as a defense. This has happened in Canada. Oh, they have that's used too bad because just because you're on drugs doesn't mean that you're it's okay to commit a crime. What what if it was methamphetamine-induced psychosis? I know, but I have mixed feelings. I have mixed feelings about marijuana because I'll tell you, if the state has legalized it, if the district, if you know, Washington D.C. has legalized it, they mm -hmm. are giving a stamp of approval. This is okay to use. And do you expect the average teenager to understand the nuances of what this can do to their brains in terms of committing violent acts? No, <laughs> you know. So I view this as the state's fault. And I actually think it probably should be a mitigating factor until, you know, state legislatures can wrap their heads around this and decide, no, this should be illegal. You know, we have to be telling teens, you know, 
in, in lieu of adequate education, which we absolutely don't have in schools right now, I've tried to go into schools to teach on this subject and they won't let me in. Yeah. You know, so they aren't getting this information. They won't get this information. I don't, I don't so know. The I only think way I'm in jail um, is an opportunity to get your brain back because you're not exposed to drugs. And if you're getting treatment, mm -hmm. if we link addiction treatment, then that young man has has hope. But if you say, oh, well, it's the state's fault you were using marijuana and that's why you killed someone else, um, they're bad, not your bad, then then you're going to have more murders. Well, I mean, the ideal would be that it would be a mitigating factor. So he wouldn't get, say, if he was in Texas, he wouldn't get the death penalty, you know, okay. that it would yeah. be mitigating so to have a more so compassionate um, sentence. Treatment. Uh, and, yes, and get treatment. treatment. That, that but it would maybe be so. There's a famous case of Adnan Sayad, who was accused of killing his girlfriend, Heyman Lee, while in high school. There's a podcast about it, an HBO special, and even a musical. But one key issue that is never addressed is that Adnan was a heavy marijuana user and may indeed have been in a fog during the murder. Today, listening to him as an adult who is drug-free, he sounds like someone innocent. However, at the time, he was a high school kid with a teenage brain whose mind was altered from using drugs, he may very well not have remembered what happened. And I find it very interesting that both the media and the legal environment did not consider that Adnan was using marijuana. And there still needs to be consequences of people's action, especially murder, despite drug use. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, the threat of consequences is what makes a lot of things happen. And so for it to be illegal, to keep it illegal, <laughs> that's the point. You know, if it was illegal, they still would be forced into treatment, but um, they wouldn't have as much of an excuse, you know, because um, basically they, the law tells them you shouldn't be doing this. And that's always the easiest form of education. Um, if you look at cigarette use, for example, cigarettes were legal. And it took 50 years of education to cut the rate of smoking. Yeah. Hundred years. There you go. <laughs> to cut to cut the rate of smoking in half. And um, if we face that with marijuana, you know, a hundred years of education, um, we're going to lose generations. Yeah, that's very sad. Um, but I think we're yeah. going to have more. More, work. I think legalization is going to give me more business and you more business, unfortunately. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, let's go back to Maddie from New Jersey and see if we answered her question. She asked, Does marijuana cause psychosis and schizophrenia, or do people just have a bad trip? And I'd say the answer to that is yes, Maddie, that we have uh, concrete scientific causation that um, marijuana can cause uh, both psychosis and permanent schizophrenia, um, as well as a, uh, what do you say, 10, seven-fold increase in suicide risk 
as well as a potential of recovery in 50%, which is low compared to other drugs. Um, so Maddie, I hope that we answered your um, question in more depth than you probably ever imagined and by Dr. Christine Miller. And tell us about the books that you have published and they are available on Amazon? They are, yes. Uh, at least for sure the first one, I'm sorry. I'm not sure about the second, but uh, the first chapter I wrote was The Impact of Marijuana on Mental Health. And it came out in Contemporary Health Issues on Marijuana published by Oxford University Press in 2018. And the second is a chapter on marijuana and suicide, case studies, population data, and potential neurochemical mechanisms that was published in Cannabis in Medicine, uh, came out this year in Springer Press. Very good. So yeah, if all our listeners want to know more than they ever thought they needed to know about the uh, marijuana yes. <laughs> and psychosis and mental health. Um, um, uh, please go see her books on Amazon. Um, so again, Maddie, thank you so much for your question. I think you have a bright future ahead of you. Um, Dr. Miller, do you have any advice for Maddie, a, a high school student, freshman during a pandemic? Oh gosh, yes. Well, I just, I guess it's important to educate yourself as much as you can to try to help educate your friends. I know that's tough because of peer pressure, but to just kind of know who you are and persevere because you're going to have to, you know, survive a lot of temptations as you go through high school and just kind of look forward to when you reach college and, you know, imagine what person you'd like to be then, um, if that's your plan to go to college or wherever you plan to be, um, just kind of keep that future focus. That would be my best advice. Um, I was very lucky with my son. Uh, he didn't use alcohol or drugs during high school and he's turned out great. <laughs> That's great. And I think Maddie is off to a wonderful start. She is part of a program called Positive Youth in New Jersey. And Positive Youth New Jersey sent us several people who, who asked uh, questions for the podcast. So I am sure she's a, a, a bright girl with a great future. It's interesting to hear you talk about your kids because my, my four kids, they grew up um, uh, with an emergency addiction physician as a mother. And my daughter would uh, yell out to my husband, hey, mom thinks I'm a drug addict because I want some Motrin, you know. <laughs> And uh, they knew it's like, do you really need that? Um, but if you need it, it's okay. Um, but yeah, Maddie, my advice to you is that you are young. Your brain is a sponge. It is still growing. So have it absorb wonderful things in, in school, in your environment, with your family, with the activities that you're obviously engaged in um, and, and use that at time. I mean, your brain is growing. It's a wonderful thing and dream big. You're, um, we're very proud of you and we really thank you for your 
question. And Dr. Christine Miller, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today and with our audience this amazing uh, information and research and depth of knowledge. Um, and uh, tell our audience, you have two books on Amazon and as well as uh, expert affiliations with several organizations. Yes, uh, the book chapter that I published on the impact of marijuana on mental health came out in 2018 in a book entitled Contemporary Health Issues on Marijuana, which can be found on Amazon. It's published by Oxford University Press. And then just this year, I published, along with co-authors, a chapter on marijuana and suicide, case studies, population data, and potential neurochemical mechanisms in Cannabis in Medicine that was published by Springer Press. The, the uh, organizations that I volunteer in my time helping you know, with scientific questions include Smart Approaches to Marijuana, which can be found at learn, learnaboutsam.org, and then also Mom Strong, which is a parent sort of group that was designed to help spread the word about tragedies that have helped happen to, um, to children of, of, you know, affected families. That's great. And um, Christine, I'm going to try to summarize the best I, I can for the uh, amazing information that you gave us into some short bullets that our listeners can relate to. Um, so from what I gather, there are four bullets uh, from from this research that people can can take um, home and, and quote and think about. Um, number one, there is a five-fold risk of chronic psychotic disorder for people who use marijuana heavily. Number two, there's a seven-fold increased risk of suicide attempt in Caucasians who begin using marijuana as teens. Number three, the recovery after a psychotic break for, from marijuana occurs 50% of the time compared to recovery from other drugs that occurs 70 to 95% of the time, um, so um, much less. And number four, the risk of violence in any drug-induced psychosis is ninefold increase compared to those with psychosis from no drug use. And in comparison with marijuana, the violence risk is 18-fold from marijuana-induced psychosis compared to controls. And it's important to note that people who have psychosis or schizophrenia who are not using street drugs and taking their prescribed medications are very unlikely to commit violence. How is that? That's an excellent summary. Thank you so much, Dr. Webb. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. 
Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.